this experience of like the music, my space around me, the visuals, the the art on the walls, the the mountains outside the window, the smells of incense and marijuana, it, it all culminates in me being one with the glass. Welcome to the Set and Setting Podcast with Madison Margolin. As a journalist, Madison has spent years exploring the intersection of psychedelics, cannabis, and culture. This podcast brings together thought leaders from today's psychedelic renaissance to talk about the role of psychedelics in our inner and outer lives. You can support this podcast and find additional resources at BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Madison. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Set and Setting Podcast. Uh, We have with us Ben Belgrad. Ben, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Madison. So Ben is an artist and the owner of Drinking Vessels, which is a marketplace for handmade drinkware and accessories. He's created a space for these cups made mostly but not limited to glass pipe artists. Uh, He operates a glass and multimedia studio in Minturn, Colorado, just a few minutes from Vail. I actually got to visit him there earlier this winter, or I guess last winter at this point. Um, And he also, which also serves as the headquarters for drinking vessels. Um, When he's not operating as business Ben, he enjoys snowboarding and seeing live music. So yeah, Ben Ben is really someone I have known for many years. And I think we actually connected over over Ramdas initially, right? Or like what yeah, that was one of the first originally. things that we spoke about. Yeah. Do you do you wanna like go over that story? I think it was pretty sweet. Sure. Yeah. So I was like just on the brink of homelessness living in Manhattan at the time on couches of friends or like people I met on Tinder or kind of like wherever I ended up at the time. And I was pursuing life as an artist. Um but I, I was like recently um I had recently left my college town a few years after graduating and be here now had played this like major role in my kind of like growing into an adult. Um, and then, yeah, we, we connected over some kind of a project, like something you were looking for, for a story you were covering. And then I learned about your connection to Ram Dass. And, and I think we, I think the first time we met, we ran across the Brooklyn bridge yeah, we went on a jog or something. It was really, really random. I I don't usually go on jogs with people I've never met before. Um, yeah, me neither. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, speaking of being here now, I do think like jogging is one of the ways that I get into flow state. And that's definitely something I want to talk to you about um, in our conversation today. But you know, let's just start with, you know, who are you? Where are you from? You know, how did you get onto this path specifically of glass blowing and for those of you who have never seen um glass blowing in action it is really one of the most like mesmerizing things i've seen just kind of objectively watching ben do his process for the for the short time that i was um at his studio but yeah just kind of tell me like your background with that yeah absolutely i grew up in the suburbs of chicago um I think I was like definitely feeling like an outsider from as early as I can remember. And I, I like struggled through growing up, but music was something like I played instruments. Um, and at that time and like before discovering Ram Dass, I was, um, exploring psychedelic drugs on my own in high school. And like Terrence McKenna was somebody that I was very interested in at the time. 
And then like my mom had seen Ram Dass speak when she was in college. And when I got to college, she, uh, she like bought me the book, be here now. And I kind of, I have like a, a tense relationship with my mom. So it wasn't something that I picked up like right away. And then I took a course in college called foundations of recreation and leisure, which is like a pretty wild subject. And for my, one of the projects that I had to do was to write a book report on a book that pertained to recreation and leisure. And at the time, basically my attitude was like, I've got this picture book in my dorm and I know that like I could write an essay about a picture book and it's probably going to be the easiest and least amount of work of like anything I could do. Um, I was very focused on partying and like fraternity life and like not so academically oriented at the time. And then of course, like (laughs) reading Be Here Now was the opposite of like um, a walk in the park, I guess. (laughs) What do you mean it was the opposite of a walk in the park? It was just so mentally stimulating for me and it made me think in such a way that I had always kind of been attuned to, but could never really, um, like I, I never really understood what it was that I was experiencing. And the, the book gave me a lot of that, like kind of just straightforward, really like in your face. Um, and, and shortly after this time, I won a raffle for a bong at a head shop on 420. So maybe like a year later. And uh, I met the two artists who, who made this piece that I won. It was an incredible piece that I still have kind of put away in, in, in uh, storage. And the two of them basically taught me how to blow glass um, through a series of events I, I learned from them. Uh, and then when I left Indiana, where I was going to college at the time, I pursued glass blowing full time uh, in New York when I met you. And I, I was I was playing in a band kind of on the side and. I just knew that I, ha- I had to find a different path from the what kind of felt imposed on me of like growing up in a certain way and going to college and then getting a certain job and like having a certain life that I don't have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, despite doing some of those things, I'm, I'm just like not really meant to be in, in that kind of uh, box that I felt confined mm-hmm. to. And the book really helped to open my mind beyond what I felt like was this box. Would, when you read Be Here Now, had you already had psychedelic experiences? Yeah, so I, I read the book in college my freshman year, and I was taking psychedelic mushrooms primarily, but some other things when I was in high school, like 15, 16 years old. And I was having like these uh, deeply profound and intense experiences as, as looking back like a pretty young child. Um, and, and I, it was also like, it was a very challenging experience for me, the psychedelic experiences I was having. It wasn't, again, I I was expecting this like walk in the park to enlightenment and it was not that. Mm -hmm. What, so Um, what was like, you know, why, I guess, why were you having that expectation? And if it wasn't that, then like, what was it? And how was that maybe like more the path that you were meant to be on anyway? So when I was young and and experimenting with psychedelics, I was definitely trying to escape a reality and definitely trying, like looking for something outside of of that box that I felt contained to. 
And ultimately, every time the experience internally was to say, uh, let go and, and like, um, stop trying to exercise so much control over the situation or stop with, I had like so many expectations and like so many, not just in psychedelics, but in life. I had so many expectations of ways that things should be, or, uh, I, I wasn't so fluid or like open. And I think, um, psychedelics and the book be here now hope helped to open me up in terms of not feeling so confined. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I want to, you know, when we talk about be here now, like it's kind of this, you know, I also relate it to this flow state, right? And I think, because I really want to get into your glass blowing work. And I recall you had once told me a story, and I don't know if it was a story about you being on mushrooms or not, but you were like, it had to do with fire. And this was like before you started yeah. to pursue glass blowing, I think, but it was yeah. sort of related to that. Can you elaborate? Right. So basically, like, um, the person who turned me on to psychedelics was like essentially the equivalent of like a family friend, an older family friend. Um, and, you know, he was like uh, not willing to give me mushrooms, but he was willing to introduce me to his friend who would because I was like specifically seeking that out. And before even like allowing me to meet that person, he was making me listen to like Terrence McKenna and also just like talking through experiences with him. It, it wasn't like this like blind thing. And I was going to a town, like a few towns from my parents' place, which was more than like a town over, but not an hour drive uh, and hanging out with these hippie kids. And like, they weren't even necessarily eating mushrooms and, and some of them would with me, but like, mostly I was like really after this experience of escapism, but also like looking for some kind of enlightenment because I was so dissatisfied with my like existence in suburban kind of cookie cutter life. And on one occasion I was hanging out with these hippie kids in the backyard and there was like a bonfire happening and people were playing hand drums and just kind of talking and conversing. And I would, I'd taken a, quite a bit of mushrooms and I was like really uh, part of this whole experience, like through my well-being, like separate. And it was all like this internalized experience of the sounds and, and the, the fire and the visuals. Um, and I had, I had previously expected to like see wild colors and kind of have your stereotypical like um, movie psychedelic experience and then it was just this much more natural like organic thing happening inside of me and i got really stressed out because i desperately wanted to be in the fire this massive like raging bonfire i wanted to get in it so bad but i rationalized internally that i knew if i had done that i would end up hurting myself and go to a hospital and people would think i was like suicidal which i was not and i had no intention of hurting myself at all but I knew that that was going to be the perception. And I had a, a two to three hour long internal struggle with myself and tried to explain this to the people around me. And ultimately, I didn't get into the fire, but I had it was more than a craving and more than an urge. It was like a, a, just such a need to be one with the fire. Um, 
And also like this existing fear, right? Like I, I was held back by my fear of this, like hurting myself or like the, the way people would perceive me or like just these external factors. But um, despite making the rational decision to not get in the fire, I, I, I did have this like strong connection to the fire uh, for probably the first time in my life. Mm-hmm. And I was like 15 years old, I think at the time. And so how did, you know, how did that kind of put you on a path to getting into glass blowing? So then when I was in college and won the raffle for this bong, the two, I you asked had the made two the artists bong? What made do you it. mean you, you run, won a raffle for the bong? <laughs> like you just, I was just, I would, yeah, a bong. yeah, yeah. So that's a good, yeah, that's a good note. So I, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to this head shop like every day and buying raffle tickets <laughs> for a bong that had been made by two local artists who I did not, I didn't know them. And through being in the shop, like every day, I kind of came to know everyone who worked there. And I also told them every day, it was about a month long contest. So by 420, every day I've told these guys, you can come over when I win and smoke this bong at my apartment because I'm going to win. And it's not, it's not like an, if I win, it's like when I win, you can come over and smoke this thing. And I think they were quite annoyed with me. I think I was like, like pretty obnoxious. My friends definitely would, would agree with that. And so of course, like a month later, they, they, they drew the ticket and I was the winning ticket. And I, you know, I was elated with excitement and I walked up to the top of the stairs um, where, cause we were waiting to, to hear who was picked and, I get up there and I see two people behind the, behind the counter and I'm like, I don't know these two people and I've been here every day. So are you two Bob and Huffy, the, the guys who made this bong? And they're like, yeah, we're, that's us. And I was like, well, holy shit. Like, okay. You know, I'm like pretty fucking excited. I have really no direction. I'm studying foundations of recreation and leisure because it seems like an easy A at the time. I don't have a major or like a plan or like, I just know I don't want to do what's expected of me. And I meet these guys and I'm like, so how do you learn how to blow glass? And they're like, well, we'll teach you. And my response was, I'm not really trying to learn how to blow glass. I'm, I'm simply curious. Is there a program or like a, like what's the, like hypothetically, how does a person learn to blow glass? And they again said, we'll teach you. And that led to a series of lessons, building a studio with them, helping to manage like retail and national distribution for a company, um, all through this kind of happenstance situation of me deciding I was going to win a bong and then winning a bong in a raffle. What did the bong look like? Was it, was it really special? <laughs> yeah, it's like a three foot tall hookah with a removable chamber that goes in the freezer uh, to get like to cool the smoke. And then there's three hoses with hand uh, etched kind of like Islamic art uh, sandblasted across the piece and on top. I'll, I'll send you a picture later. Yeah, I mean, just for the audience, you know, glass blowing is really an intricate art. You know, I'm, I'm sure most people are familiar with it, but some of these bongs are, you know, like million dollar art pieces. I don't know. What, what do you think like the most expensive piece of glass is out there at this point? I'm not sure about the most expensive one, 
but a piece did just sell for a quarter million about two weeks ago. Yeah, and these a, 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 hookah, a hookah bong, Sim, not not so similar to mine. Like mine's not worth that much money, but similar enough in the bigger context here. Right, and I mean, and I think also like just so people are familiar with the like the scope of the the glass blowing scene, like some of these pieces look like sculptures or are in the shapes of like dragons or, you know, what, you know, octopuses. I don't, I'm just, I'm thinking of like even stuff that my brother-in-law collects and he's a glass collector. Right. Um, And they're all tech, they're all technically like functional bongs, right? Right. For the most part. And so you have these sculptural objects that could weigh like five to 10 pounds and if it's on your mantle, it might just look like a sculpture, but if you know what's going on and you turn it around and you, you put in a certain adapter, like then it's a functional rig for, for dabbing hash or for smoking weed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and at this point, these are becoming like museum-level pieces, and 20 years ago, it was just like hippies selling pipes to get to the next Grateful Dead show. Right, right. So what, you know, and I've seen you glow, uh, blow glass before, but, you know, like how, how is that really for you, like getting into this flow state and, you know, kind of this opportunity to be here now? Like how does your own kind of like spiritual psychedelic background and philosophy or, you know, practice relate to the, to the art that you do? Yeah, so um, I was captivated from the first moment I saw a torch lit. After that initial meeting with these artists, you know, I, I went to one of their houses. He showed me the equipment. He kind of explained to me how things worked and did a little demonstration for me. And at this time, like, I was too afraid to even touch the glass or, like, operate a torch. I thought I was going to hurt myself. Like, I, 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 I don't know. I, I was not the most likely candidate for this. Um, and I think back and, and, and like at this point, you know, it's very nonchalant to just, for me to just turn on a torch and start melting glass and manipulating it. But there were many, many years where that was not a comfortable experience for me. Um, and I think it's, I, you know, I often dwell on like the 10,000 hours, uh, Malcolm Gladwell concept of applying yourself to any one thing for 10,000 hours will give you a level of mastery, uh, automatically just by spending that much time um and at this point most of my time is not spent blowing glass rather operating my company uh, which i can talk more about in a bit but in terms of when i am blowing glass it is a, a full transcend transcend transcendental experience for me that is um like uh like you said the flow state i mean it's funny that you bring that up because my first the first person who ever tur- turned on a torch in front of me, Bob, told me about the flow state on the first day. And I have a lot of these synchronicities around glass and these kind of like, um, some people would say a coincidence or maybe a deja vu, but to me it's just, um, it's so it's so like inherent in my existence that um, it's only it was only a matter of time before I stumbled onto it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as for, as for the flow state, my typical process is I, I have a studio. It's here. I'm in a garage unit, um, a warehouse in the mountains. And my lathe is the machine that I'm operating. And it looks out 
um, straight at the river, and and then behind the river is is the peaks of the mountains. So I'm surrounded by this beautiful setting um, in a space that's also adorned with murals and graffiti and and art from friends and collaborators from around the country. Um, and then I'll, I'll typically like blast music at, at like a pretty high level um, on my stereo and, and oftentimes repeating one song for days at a time, like only one song. Headphones, when I'm not at the studio, car, stereo, when I'm driving, like the same song for days or weeks at a time. Um, and that, that song changes and there's many, you know, different ones, but that's kind of how I achieve my like really optimal working flow. What do you think it is about repeating the same song? Because that reminds me of like the way that, you know, people who pray every day return to the same prayers every day. And, and like what's, you know, the song is the, is the constant, right? You know, it's the control versus. Yeah. 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 So then is there any specific music that really kind of works for, for using it way? Yeah, so it changes from time to time, but but like, and I wouldn't even say this is the most frequent, but one that will make a lot of sense to you is that I listen to a lot of Krishna Das. And it would be suggestible that like listening to an entire Krishna Das album is almost like listening to one song or just shuffling his music. It's kind of a mantra that's just elongated. Um, and I discovered Krishna Das through the same person who turned me on to psychedelics, this family friend. Uh, and he had turned me on to the concept of be here now without fully, like, maybe he told me it was a book, but he didn't give me or show me the book. And I, I didn't really know much about Ram Dass at the time. Again, this was like my high school era. Um, and sometimes it's like hardcore metal music. And sometimes it's like fish or the dead. And sometimes it's, drum and bass, EDM, I mean, these songs totally change is the equivalent of this background mantra for my life, uh, whether I'm like blowing glass or driving or, or just hanging around reading. Um, it's not so much about the words. It's Some of them have words, some of them don't. And I listen to a lot of kinds of music, but especially if I'm working on like a serious piece of glass, not some basic production stuff, I'm like... Uh, it's like this psychedelic experience for me while I'm also not, I mean, I smoke weed all day, but I'm, I'm not on any drugs when I'm blowing glass mm-hmm. uh, and I don't really eat psychedelic. I don't, I don't consume psychedelic drugs anymore in my adult life or not, not for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, this experience of like the music, my space around me, the visuals, the, the art on the walls, the, the mountains outside the window, the smells of incense and marijuana, it, it all culminates in me being one with the glass, which is molten hot at a few thousand degrees and multiple torches that are even hotter to get the glass up to temperature. And it's, it's on a lathe just spinning in this, um, in this, like, uh, this meditative uh, pattern. And I'm just staring straight at it you know, I, I really become one with the glass in that moment um, with all that setting kind of around. And is there something about um, also being like so close to fire? And, you know, you're saying you're one with the glass and the glass is like in the fire. Like, 
Yeah. I don't know. Does that danger, I don't, I don't know if danger is the word, but like that proximity to something that is like so consuming and powerful kind of have an effect on the experience? 10 or so years ago, when I was first introduced to glass, I was mortified of hurting or killing myself with the flame or the, the you know, the, the jagged glass. In today's setting, I'm so comfortable standing next to a 5,000 degree or 4,000 degree flamethrower. I'm almost like I'm warmed by it. I'm, I'm, I'm within inches of it. I'm not far away from it. And then the glass might be like a foot away from me. Mm-hmm. Um, so all that heat is radiating on me. Um, it's a very hot experience. It's not, it's not like other art forms where you're kind of removed from that. And it's one of the challenges that comes with the medium is enduring that heat and like embracing that heat that used to really like turn me off or not turn me off, but like intimidate me, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm I'm not super into like astrology or the zodiac, but I am a Pisces, and I I, I find it interesting that I've got this water sign, and then I'm like so drawn to fire. I hate the beach. You know, I don't like the ocean. I, you're not gonna find me like uh, so, you know. I live in the mountains. It's this like grounded um, space that I have here, and it's it's a change for me from when I used to live on the road and be kind of vagabond and kind of not have my own space. Um, and that's really allowed me to like develop my voice as an artist. And, you know, what, when we talk about like being in flow state, um, being here now, like what is the actual, um, I'll say like mental and somatic experience of that? Like you say when you're one with the glass, like are are you thinking? Are you know like what like like yeah. what is what are you really trying to achieve? And I know you know people struggle with this when they sit down to meditate, and then all of a sudden there's like ten thoughts like popping up, and it's like I think of them as like little bubbles that burst eventually, but like they're floating around. So what's going on for you, both in your head and in your body, when you're when you're in this state? Okay, so like, let's say I start an uninvolved project that's going to take me a few hours where I can't, I can't take a break, basically. Um, you know, there are, there are ways to take a break, but you can't like, you can't check out, you have to be mentally there. So I'm not checking my phone for, let's say, like, three, four, five hours. This is completely abnormal to my normal, my routine. Um, and then... <clears throat> it's it, it's going to start with some pretty basic steps i'm doing like the prep that's gonna go into this bigger project before i start the assembly and so during that time i'm probably thinking about like the stresses of my day and like the orders i need to ship and like the artists i need to communicate with to make sure i'm stocked on inventory um for my company which i can get to again like a little bit later and and those things are like bombarding my brain and i'm just blowing glass with that happening in the background. And then at some point, everything's on the line. Mm-hmm. Did I, did I cut out that? Oh, okay. No, 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 you're good. Uh, so at, at some point with the glass, it has this experience where it could, it could break at any point in the process. And the further into the process you are, the more that you lose, if that does happen, right? Your time and, and, and the materials. And so, 
by the time that I get, you know, an hour or two into this piece, I'm not thinking about the orders I need to ship or the messages that might be on my phone waiting for me. I'm only thinking about are my pieces of are my tools in the right places? Are the are the is the next piece that I need to add into this project ready in the kiln? Uh, you know, do I have the right amount of, of materials on the table, like ready to go for each of these steps that's coming up? And I'm simultaneously keeping this piece of glass hot so that it doesn't crack and break. And like uh, at some point. I'm, I'm maybe operating like three, four or five, tor- three, four t- torches at a time and, and four to eight tools at a time. I'm reaching across to the table next to me where everything is kind of laid out. It's a, it's a pretty hectic experience for somebody watching. And for me, I'm completely in the zone. I could reach and grab something without looking and I know where it is. I can, you know, I'm, I know where I can spray my torch and where I can't without hitting things. I don't have to think, oh, am I going to be hitting the back? wall or am I hitting my hose or my tools or something? And at this point, I'm only looking at the glass, monitoring its shape and getting it to exactly where I want it to be with this combination of tools and torches and objects around me and my breath. I'm, I'm blowing into a hose that's inflating, uh, you know, this, this hot molten bubble. I forgot at that point, breath piece. Yeah, that's huge. Right, right. So I'm really like, I, my breath is directly correlated to the shape of this thing, and my breathing is also tethered on, on this thing. And that becomes a meditation of its own. Um, and then whatever's playing in the background at this point, we're talking about like two hours into listening to either the same song or one of the playlists I have already existing that has all this, you know, the, the <laughs> multiple hundred songs that I listen to on repeat. So it's like... At this point, that's totally like background, but it's also like blaring in my face, you know, and I'm totally not, I'm like internally kind of like rhythmically in line with every hit of the song, but also like it means nothing. It's totally, it's totally separated from me. Yeah. Um, Well, it reminds me, I don't know why I'm getting the image of like the exact polar opposite of like a sensory deprivation tank is like, a sensory overload tank, which maybe has the same sort of like effect and sort of like this pendulum style where the two experiences like meet in the middle a little bit. Right. And it's like, um, at that point, like the music is going through me and the glass is like this thing that I'm very in touch with and everything visually around me is just like background. Mm -hmm. And you know, at, at that at that point, I'm not thinking about anything besides for the exact here and now, like the most present I could possibly be. Um, I, there's no thoughts about if somebody else texted me back or if I remembered to, to shut this off or do this thing or or like no concern in the world could just could take me out of that. Mm-hmm. And it's all, like you're saying, all the sensory overload is like um, leaving my brain without any space to like worry about that other crap. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. Right. I mean, and also just like working with such precious and um, volatile, you know, elements, like I think, again, it forces a kind of focus that you wouldn't necessarily be able to achieve, you know, if the situation itself were less... Um, 
I don't want to use their dire. Like, like it, I feel like that has a bad connotation, but you know, it's a very kind of, it's like you're walking a tightrope a little bit. Bingo. Yes. And for me, there, there's a lot of reactions that can happen if and when your glass doesn't go the way you want it to. Um, some people react by throwing the glass at the floor or in the trash and like screaming and yelling and being angry. Um, and I, I like definitely understand the, the want to do that when you, I have fucked up many projects that were six to 10 hour projects on the last step. And I was, everything was perfect until the end. Uh, and you know, uh, if that happens to me, I don't just like start over the second that it happens and just get after another one. I think that would be the ultimate Zen. But I also like, I don't lose my cool. I might scream something once and then it's out of my system. And I'm like, I move on, catch my breath, you know, take a step back and reapproach it when I'm like ready mentally to reapproach it. Um, but I've seen people really lose their cool. Like when you, when you lose a piece and to me, it's, it's like, well, that's just part of the next piece. And part of every subsequent piece was the learning and the experience of how am I going to do that last step better on the next piece? Or how do I design this process better? So I don't get myself in that corner with only that maneuver left to do. Um, and that's its own like Zen practice of letting go the entire culmination of my psychedelic experience comes down to be here now and let go. And, and if I can do that with glass, that's the ultimate, that's the in-life test, like the, the practice. Yeah, I mean, it, there's two things that are coming to mind. Um, you know, one is like something my mother always says to me, which is, you know, a known quote or whatever aphorism is just that like, it's not about the destination, it's the journey, right? And it's like, are you doing it because just of the process of of doing it? Or is it is the point, you know, this finished piece of glass at the end, which again could break on the last step. The other thing that comes to mind is um, Maharaji talked a lot about grace. Um, and, you know, first the process itself takes all of this grace of just to physically do it. But I think, you know, when you embody grace, both, you know, like, you know, somatically, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, then what is grace in the face of something like, you know, breaking your glass after 10 hours of work, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, for me, and that's a good segue into like a separate part of my life. uh, When I learned how to blow glass, there was a direct correlation between my income and ability to provide for myself and stay alive and the success of my production, that was a that was a direct correlation, and I was fully reliant upon successfully blowing glass and making products in order to like pay to stay alive, which is an unfortunate paradigm of capitalism. Um, I, I, a few years into my experience learning to be a glassblower, I, I determined that a I wasn't I, I, that wasn't how I was going to operate and thrive, and b I didn't really want this, like what started as a passion to become uh, so tethered to my like work. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I created a company where I am, I've created a marketplace and I'm brokering for other artists. Um, 
when these pipe artists, which is how I came into this whole thing, was through making glass pipes, uh, when they make handmade drinkware, um, I buy as much of that as I can to keep inventory here at the studio and put on shows and sell online and produce pop-ups where I promote the lifestyle that goes along with using these cups. Mm-hmm. And so in this iteration, uh, I built my studio with some help from a friend. Uh, you know, I, I created the distribution company, which is like my job, if you will. Um, and I mostly blow glass for pleasure at this point in my life. Uh, I don't release a ton of my own work. I only blow glass if I want to. There's a, I, I have like, I've written in paint marker and Sharpie all over my studio walls uh, in all capital letters. And one of them on top of my workstation says, don't force it. Um, another one on the other workstation says, get to work. So it's kind of some somewhat often conflicting, but I'm trying to be mindful and like blow glass and produce objects that I want to see in the world, not blow glass because I have to pay bills mm-hmm. that you know, the next day mm-hmm. and creating this company has, has given me the space to do that. And while I don't blow glass as much as I would love to, uh, at this current state, I'm building the foundation such that if, and when I have the creative spark, then everything is in place for me to do so. And you said something about the lifestyle that goes with glassware, you know, like what are you referring to exactly? And is this, you know, the cannabis lifestyle you're and I know we're also talking about cups best drinking vessels so yeah what is what is the lifestyle yeah so functional art is this very unique space and the fact that people are collecting these glass pipes and then using them and taking them to their friend's house to share the experience of smoking out of these pipes with somebody else uh, that's a major part of the cultural identity of this art movement and also a person who doesn't smoke weed is probably going to find very little uh, value in these pieces of art. But there's an entire movement of pattern work and of shaping that has all come out of the pipe scene. And I'm trying to create a platform where we can share that with people who might not specifically use pipes. Or in a different context, you can't really take your bong to the restaurant and like have it out on the table and share it with your friends but you you can certainly and i have taken these cups by the same artists featuring the same styles and techniques to a brewery or a bar or a restaurant and be served in them and share that same experience over art uh with other people mm-hmm. um and this is like an experience very different than paintings and sculptures and, and kind of traditional art, which is maybe not engaged with in the same way as this functional art. Right. And, you know, as a collector and as someone who's kind of this purveyor of glassware, um, what are you looking for? You know, like when you see a piece of glass, an art, a functional art piece, like how are you judging it? How are you deciding who to work with? Like, are there certain sort of artistic or other values that you're applying to, um, you know, this more business aspect of your work? Yeah. So I, I read something recently. I, I, I definitely can't quote it 
precisely, but it was essentially an artist talking about Brian, you know, talking about not wanting to create artwork that he doesn't feel that need to bring into the world. So like not just making art for the sake of a bank account um, is a really important concept to me. And there are all these opportunities for me too. For example, I could be buying mass produced cups and baking my logo onto those and selling them for a $20 margin all day and just making tons of money that way. But it's also like not supporting artisanal craft. It's not supporting individuals. It's, it's paying the machine. Um, and so I'm looking for more creative ways where everything we source down to our coasters are, are hand burned. The shirts are hand printed here and we use dead stock uh, as, as to not contribute to like fast fashion waste. These sweaters are embroidered by my friend uh, in Denver that we sell. And so everything is with a conscious effort to enable individuals and, and to support artisanal crafts. Um, and that's, that's like the main thing I'm looking for is, is this product unique and does it look and, and is everything about it handmade and noticeably so an authentic original artwork, not um, a replica? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's definitely a different market growing out of kind of what I feel like I've started in the cup industry for these more like clear scientific kind of um, beer cups within this new craft beer scene that's also emerging. Mm. Um, but at this point you have like a few hundred glass blowers making relatively the same knockoffs of about two or three people who design that product. And I get contacted by them weekly, regularly, you know, saying, Hey, will you carry this product? Um, and that's like one of the few things that I'm not really carrying because I feel like it is not original artwork, even though it's a handmade cup. Um, aside from that, I source from relationships that I have with existing artists and all of my friends who know me are are sending me either Instagram links or pictures of ceramics, wood, glass, you know, my friends are traveling and they're in some random marketplace and they see a cool cup. They send me a picture. Mm -hmm. I've sourced from a guy in Haiti who hand carves with a, he doesn't even have electricity. So no drill, just hand chiseling out of stone. Um, you know, anything that I can find that has a story and that is original, unique, aesthetically pleasing artwork with functionality being factored, uh, I'm, I'm pretty much interested in carrying that. Yeah. You know, this is, I feel like this interview is so um, visceral in a way. Like you are talking about these very sensory experiences. And, you know, oftentimes when people talk about like spiritual topics, it's very much, you know, like a lofty talking about meditation and like, you know, all these things that are going on inside the head. And, you know, here we're talking about like what you're observing with glass, like the physical sensation of like blowing the glass, whatever. And, you know, I'm thinking also, you know, even like looking out your window and being in the middle of the mountains, you have that also visual experience. And so you mentioned snowboarding in your, in the um, bio you know, that just feels like, you know, it's just an interesting for me, like window into Ben's life. And, you know, again, I've I've visited you in Colorado, so I know, 
I have an idea of it, but is, you know, does snowboarding or do these other sorts of physical activities lend themselves to kind of this overall, you know, the thread that you're weaving in, you know, into what you do? Right. So snowboarding is like the epitome of be here now. Um, and again, I'm, I'm also at the same time blasting music in my headphones, often one song or playlist on repeat. Um, and and it, I treat it the same way as glass blowing. There's no, for me, the thought of like competing in snowboarding, it doesn't exist. It's strictly an experience for me to like let go and be fully present. I mean, if I, I ride in the trees a lot, and, you know, if I'm not paying attention, if I'm thinking about, oh, did, she, did this person text me back? Did I pack that order? Did, have I met all my obligations in life, you know? There's no room for that. It's strict play, and it's it's the real essence of be here now. I'm not worried about my my taxes and my bills and my the stresses in my life, and you know, none of that can can affect me out there. Um, and that's that's what I'm trying to create in terms of like a- applying that to all experiences in my life, not just the fun playful ones you know not just the the right like trying to incorporate that into my business practices and my personal relationships and my you know my marketing content that i'm creating for this company and like trying to really tap into how can we as a community my cup community or this like drinking vessels community how can we be present sharing a drink with somebody out of a handmade cup instead of something that came out of a machine that you see at every restaurant Mm -hmm. talking about the artists and the techniques and the patterns instead of talking about, you know, drama and and people and, you know, politics that I I mean, politics in the context of um, the current political discourse of, of, you know, uh, what's going on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it does. I'm not going to get into. We don't have to. (laughs) I'd rather not. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, is there anything else that I I didn't ask you that you want to add or talk about or just, yeah. Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure if I answered your questions about like, you know, be here now or not, but that's like, um, that's like the underlying theme of my, from when I wake up until I, go to sleep is like how can i be the most present and like in it um with everything that i do and i created a business and 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 a lifestyle that that facilitates that for me uh, um out of necessity i think Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think what's so cool about hearing about your work and also the snowboarding hobby (laughs) Um, is that it's these like micro instances where you're forced to be here now or you have to get into flow state, but really like when you are able to embody being here now for the, you know, in the context of blowing glass or snowboarding or whatever it is, then it becomes kind of this grander metaphor for life is like, how can you just live in be here now and like apply that consciousness and awareness and, um, care even I'll say to your relationships and like how you move through the world or how you 
you know, are just like a good person, I guess. Um, like how does, you know, I, this is one thing that people don't talk about a lot is like, how does be here now relate to morality, um, relate to like our totally. obligations as human beings on this planet? So I don't, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, I think sometimes I encounter people who perceive be here now to be like this selfish experience and I, I do find people in like, maybe maybe it's like the woke community or whatever. It's like, well, I don't I don't have the space for other people. Like I'm, I need to focus on my self-love and self-care. And that means like ghosting people and like, you know, canceling plans like 30 seconds before you're supposed to be there instead of just like giving a heads up or something. I mean, so I think, I think there can be this like selfish connotation to be here now. It's, mm-hmm. it, could, it could come off that way. And then like a, a, a separate facet to that is understanding that like it's so much more about all of us than the individual and like how my actions ripple and like the, the interconnectedness of all those things mm-hmm. such that, that even if I'm not totally feeling like doing something, if I haven't given somebody like a, a reasonable amount of time to alter their plans, I'll show up, you know? And I mean, it, I think it's like, yeah, go on. No, I don't know if there's more to, than that. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the one, the, the last question I want to ask you is, you know, and for the audience here, you know, one fun fact about Ben is that his dad's a rabbi. Um, and so I think that so much of like when we talk about morality and um, tikkun olam or like repairing the world um, and how that, you know, Ram, Maharaji said like feed everyone, right? Like what is the service? And this is something often I like to focus on in the end part of these podcasts. Um, you know, how does that all kind of come together with that, you know, with being here now and the work that you do and again, making like a contribution to something outside yourself? Yeah. So I'll say that in the context of being raised by a reform rabbi father and a mother who was a social worker and, and part-time helicopter parent, my life and my childhood was really, um, rule oriented and like really, um, you know, my parents are very open-minded, but they were just like a very strict moral code and like rules my whole existence. And that was part of what contributed to this experience of me, like feeling trapped inside of a box as a, as a young kid. And like within the context of the structure, I, I really like resisted, you know, I was like very anti-establishment. Um, and then, like, in the context of applying that to my Be Here Now experience, it, I think, is the difference between my perceiving Be Here Now to be a selfish um, pathway and, like, a group-oriented pathway for me. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I'm always successful, but my attempt is to, like, prioritize the benefit of the group um 
So in the context of like my business, of course, I make money selling these cups, but I'm also providing this platform where the artist doesn't have to worry about photographing their work, marketing their work, shipping their work, negotiating with the clients, putting it, you know, displaying it. I remove as many factors as I can so that they can focus on creating their artwork. Um, that's kind of like the goal of my company. And so while it is a for-profit entity, there's these like facets that comprise it um, that that really embody like that group um, effort. Mm-hmm. And I, I see that as a way of like reacting to some of the to some of the issues and struggles that I myself have had as an artist uh, and, and ways that I could like uh, solve that for, other, you know, or at least provide um, alleviation on those things for other artists. Um, yeah. Well, simultaneously it affords me having this space and this creative space and getting to interact with these artists and, and having a place to create my work um, is all through that work. Well, I, I think that's a, Great answer. Um, so, and yeah, and of course, I just want to say, Ben, like, thank you for the work that you do, that you do, that you do do. <laughs> um, because, you know, even in my experience of like drinking out of the the cups that either you've made and given to me or that you, yeah, you know, I remember there was like a really cool cup that um, you were selling with a key in it at one point last yeah. year. That was really, yeah, it was, I wish I could, I wish a podcast could be visual for a second so anyone could see this cup. But like the key was blown into the cup. It was very, and sticking out, it was really cool. And it it just, again, it, it elevates the experience of just drinking a beer, whatever it is. And I think, you know, in, you know, in Judaism or in, in different religions, we have this experience of taking the mundane and kind of blessing it, right? You like make a blessing over the wine or over the food or you take something that is like really basic and embodied and make it higher, you know, elevate it. And so I think drinking out of one of these vessels, you know, it's like kiddish cups or whatever it is, like it really um, brings that element to, to just really regular everyday experiences. So I just want to say thank you. Um, And the last thing is how can people uh, keep in touch with you and, um, like look up your work, what's your social media, all of that. Yeah, totally. So drinkingvessels.com is the best place to shop for handmade drinkware uh, that I'm curating, constantly evolving and and adding to. Um, There are a few of my collaborations there, but I I don't really ultimately have much work for sale of my own. Um, And then like at drinkingvessels is how you'll find me on Instagram or kind of wherever else. Um, and as my company has grown, it, it kind of like, it started off as just like my own page and, and where I was kind of doing things. And as I tried to like turn it into a more professional entity, um, I, I've kind of removed like Ben Belgrad from the, there, there's an extent to which it's like less Ben Belgrad and more like a, a company, a, a corporate entity, mm-hmm. not really, but in presentation. Mm-hmm. And so I write a weekly blog on my website, uh, or at least I try to write it weekly, giving like a little bit more into my personal experience versus like the, the kind of like company life. Cool. 
Well, thank you so much for joining the podcast. And um, yeah, I'm excited, you know, for more more of this to come, really. Like, I, I really encourage everyone to keep up with Ben and Drinking Vessels. And he's he's doing really beautiful work in the world. So thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. I'm really enjoying this podcast and I'm super thrilled to be a part of it. <laughs>